Please remain standing for the reading from our gospel lesson today. The lesson comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then the people of Jerusalem and all of Judea were going out to him and all the region along the Jordan, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Meryl, thank you so much for reading our lesson and grace and peace to each of you. It's so good to see all of you in person uh, today on this first Sunday in December, the second Sunday of Advent. And those of you who are with us online, what a privilege it is to be with you and to share God's word with you in worship. Uh, wherever you are, we want you to know how grateful we are that you've tuned in to be with us today. It means a great deal to us. Uh, I want to thank Declan and Kenley over here. I think they're, are they over there on the other side of that tree? Yeah, they did such a great job with our reading this morning. We're so grateful to our children who are leading us in the lighting of the candles, to the Asbury Choir, to our chancel choir. My, uh, we are so, so blessed today to be in worship and to be led, Jonathan, by you and Ryan and others. And uh, what a privilege it is to be with each of you. Well, we're continuing our series that we started last Sunday, the Sunday after Thanksgiving, that we're calling expected, uh, Expecting the Unexpected. If you're counting, we're now just 21 days from the day, which means for the men in the group, it's almost time to start your shopping. It's a little early for me, but for some of you, we're staying with the lectionary, which is a list of readings uh, that the church has given to us over a three-year period, particularly during the high and holy seasons. We often follow the lectionary that calls us in the second and third week of Advent to contemplate for a few minutes the ministry of John the Baptist. While two of the four gospel accounts, namely Matthew and Luke, include birth stories, all four gospels begin with the preaching 
of John the Baptist. The early church in the second and third generation saw John as being something of a forerunner or a harbinger to Jesus, one who, like Elijah, came preaching in the woods, in the wilderness, to prepare the way for the coming king. In fact, did you know that the last two verses of the Old Testament foretell his ministry? The last two verses are in Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Behold, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn, remember that word, he will turn the hearts of fathers to their kids and the kids to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, I've italicized that word turn. It's very important. That word turn is the key to the text. If you know the Hebrew, the Hebrew word is shub, S-H-U-B, shub, which literally means to repent or to return to God. The Greek term is metanoia, which simply means a change of mind. I've often said to people, the only way that you can check and make sure you still have a mind is to change it every now and then. It is a change of heart. It's not about feeling sorry or bad about my sin. It's about turning away from my sin and turning towards God in a way that leads to a changed life, in a way that leads to a changed action. And I think, I think it's very fitting that we look at John the Baptist because the preparation necessary for Advent and, and for the coming of God begins with repentance. It begins with turning. One of my life verses is Second Chronicles seven fourteen. You know it, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land begins with turning. And it's thematic in the preaching, not only of John, but if you flip to Matthew 4, 17, you'll discover it's also thematic. It's the keynote of Jesus's preaching. Repent, turn, for the kingdom of heaven is near. In other words, one translation says, the rule of God, the reign of God is just around the bend. Now, some of you who know me personally know that I am geographically challenged. When I was conceived, geography did not come with my conception. And my, my wife has a saying around our house after 37 years of marriage. She says, Davis, if you come to a stop sign and you think you should turn left, turn right and you'll get there. I mean, it's really bad. I, I can get you to heaven, but I can't get you to Franklin. It's a real problem sometimes. And because of that, because I've suffered with this all of my life, my favorite road signs are the ones that say U-turns aloud. <laughs> I love those signs. I've used them frequently. The ones that permit a 180. The ones that allow for an about face. When you know you're going wrong and you've been going wrong for several miles, and I think in regard to our journeys of faith, that U-turns are also necessary. Indeed, the scripture tells us that U-turns are required for the faith journey. 
And that was John's keynote. And that's our preparation for Advent. He was an oddball, John. He, he was curious. He was old school. In fact, when you listen to his preaching, he looks and sounds a little bit more like an Old Testament prophet than a first century temple priest. Uh, you see his clothing. He's wearing camel skin. He eats bugs in the wilderness. If you'd gotten close to him, his clothing would have smelled probably like mothballs and cedar wood. He was old school. He grew up in the temple. He was raised in a parsonage. In fact, he was a PK. He's a preacher's kid, or we call him sometimes TOs, theological offspring. He was born to parents that were old enough to be his grandparents. And John the Baptist, like our son, Andrew, was always older than his years. In fact, we say of our firstborn son, he was seven on the day he was born, and he came out reading the Wall Street Journal. Just all, so many firstborn, always older than his years. And somehow, being a PK or a TO early in his life, he somehow was offered a glimpse behind the ecclesial curtain. And though he too would be called to preach, frankly, he found the religious institution a little too confining, a little too restrictive. This man had absolutely no interest in pomp and circumcision. He was totally interested in changed lives. And I don't have to tell you, he could shuck the corn. When I think of PKs, I think of Timothy Tyson, who was at Duke University as a research scholar, an adjunct professor at UNC. He's a PK, actually, who's written a, written a wide variety of that experience. He has one, a book now out on Emmett Till, but he wrote this as a PK growing up in the 50s and 60s in Mississippi, his dad a pastor, and he writes of that time in his life. Every minister, he writes, worthy of the name, has to walk the line between prophetic vision and spiritual care, between telling people comforting things that they want to hear and challenging things that they need to hear, in Oxford, Mississippi, Daddy began to feel as though all the members of the church wanted from him was to marry and bury them and to stay away from their souls. But he couldn't do it. And neither can I. And neither could John the Baptist. Mr. Wesley was also a PK. Did you know that? His father, Samuel, Susanna, Parsonage family, he was one of 21 children in the Wesley family. He once said to his pastors these words, you have nothing to do but to save souls. Therefore, spend and be spent in this work and go not only to those who need you, but to those who need you most. It is not your business to preach so many times and to take care of this or that society but to save as many souls as you can and to bring as many sinners as possible to repentance. In other words, U-turns are allowed and they're required. 
One of my favorite psychologists was a man by the name of Scott Peck who wrote a book called The Road Less Traveled, but his second book, I think, was his finest, People of the Lie, in which he writes about working with convicted prisoners in jail. And this is what he writes, get this. I rarely found evil in there, but I recognized one day that the central defect of evil is not the sin, but the refusal to acknowledge sin. That's the major defect of evil. And maybe, just maybe, this is why Jesus and John were so tough on the religious insiders, more so than they were on the outsiders. That's interesting to me to note, Matthew says that, that all of Jerusalem, all of Judea were coming out to see John, including, says Matthew, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now pause it there for just a moment because this is not a homogeneous group. These are two very different groups. The Pharisees were the lay leaders of the synagogue. They were advocates of scripture and tradition in a very strict and holy manner of life. That was the Pharisees. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were the priestly party. They were clergy like me. They ran the temple and they were well-educated and politically savvy and for some, a little too cozy with the Roman government. Historically, these two groups, Sadducees and Pharisees, were opponents and competitors for the loyalty of the people. But in John the Baptist, they found a common enemy. And I don't have to tell you, nothing unites people like a common enemy. John wasn't a part of the system. He wasn't a part of the religious institution. So the Sadducees and Pharisees, when they came out to the water, they didn't come to listen and to repent. They came to inspect and critique and disapprove. In fact, Matthew says they never got in the water. They stayed on the bank and they were unaware if they had any need to confess any wrongdoing to him. When John saw them, he gave them an earful. I mean, it's almost unbelievable that Matthew actually prints this stuff. Hey, you bunch of reptiles. He was very timid. After all, he was a Baptist. <laughs> Snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Don't think because you are sons and daughters of Abraham that you can get in on apron strings, that you can escape the judgment. No, you've got to bear fruit that befits repentance. In other words, he's saying it's not ethnicity, it's not ethnic stuff that God is concerned about, it's ethics. It's not just dogma, it's doing. It's, it's not just orthodoxy, it's orthopraxy. And this is exactly what Jesus will say in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters five through seven. His conclusion to that is, not everyone who confesses me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but she or he who does the will of my Father. It's about fruit. 
I was thinking about Gil Rendell the other day. Dr. Gil Rendell, for many years, was the vice president of the Texas Methodist Foundation. I'm in a part of a, a group of ministers, uh, a small group of ministers in big tent churches in the Texas Methodist Foundation. And Dr. Rendell has written a piece called Jacob's Bones. I have given this to our lead team and you can Google it. And, and it's kind of a must read, I think right now for the church. It's 25 pages, it's more like a dissertation. But it's called Jacob's Bones and it's about the church's institutional future that there's been a lot of conversation about. Let me try to summarize it for you. Rendell notes the general distrust and disrespect that we're seeing in, in many of our institutions, and it's in all of them. It's in healthcare, it's in law enforcement, it's in the legal practice, it's in, it's in the public school system. There is disrespect and distrust in so many of our institutions. And Rendell says the reason for the mistrust can be seen in the distinction get this, between an organization's public mission and its private mission. An organization's public mission is what we announce to the world as our purpose. For example, let me just use this for an example, the public mission of a school system is the education and preparation of our kids for the future. However, says Rendell, over time, and I think this is true, all organizations naturally develop an internal private mission, which is usually the satisfaction of the most powerful of the constituencies that are connected to the organization. Using the example again of a school system, he says, the private mission of constituency satisfaction can often lead school boards to make decisions that will focus on satisfying teachers or satisfying parents, state and federal mandates, and local community interests. In time, this private mission will overshadow the needs of the students as the primary focus of the public mission. Now please forgive me and hear me. I am not picking on the school system when I say this. In fact, Williamson County leads the state. It's a wonderful school system. This is an example. And then Rendell makes the point that all institutions tend to gravitate toward a private mission of constituency satisfaction. And perhaps that was happening with the Sadducees. It happens with religious institutions. Says Rendell, in our own denomination, the public mission is about making disciples of Christ for the transformation of the world, but sometimes institutional survival takes over with attention given to the internal constituencies like clergy security, like congregational development to increase dollars and people to support established buildings, programs, and the fulfillment of the letter of the law, institutional management as outlined in our books of polity. And says Rendell, from outside the institution, people begin to intuit that the church announces one thing about its purpose and then focuses too much of her energy on our own internal stuff.
When that happens, the result is entropy. You know that word? Entropy is the tendency of all things to deteriorate over time. It's an organic thing. It's a natural tendency of nature, of nations, of institutions, organizations, governments, and even our human bodies. That's just reality. That's the bad news. But here's the good news. It is possible by God's grace to intercept entropy. But it starts with repentance. It starts by making a U-turn. Said Robert Quinn, business professor at the University of Michigan, we cannot become what we need to be by remaining what we are. Turn. Repentance. John the Baptist saw an institution that had become more preoccupied with temple maintenance than the souls of the people. And it can still happen. I have a friend who reminds me every now and then that we in the clergy talk way too much about the church and not nearly enough about Jesus. And when you look at John, He doesn't point people to the institution. He points people to the incarnation. And that's the public and private mission of the church. I baptize you with water, he says, but there's one coming after me who's more powerful than I, who will baptize you with spirit and fire, and I'm not worthy to unlace his shoes. I must decrease while he increases. He just points others to Jesus. And the truth of the matter for the church, for any church, is that the constituency that matters to the body of Christ is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's all of our constituency. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I still believe in the institution. John still believed in the temple, even when he was talking that way. John still believed in the Torah, of course. But he realized that his task was to point to the teacher, not just to the temple, to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the spirit of Jesus still within us enables U-turns <laughs> so that our fruit actually reflects our repentance. Last word. Will Williman, Bishop Williman, who was also dean of the chapel at Duke University before he became a bishop in Alabama, tells the story of his early days in ministry He was serving a small church in rural Georgia, and one Saturday, he and Pat, his wife, went to a funeral in a country church of another denomination. Now, Will had grown up at Buncombe Street, a large downtown church, and he had never been to a funeral like this one. The casket was wide open. The funeral consisted of a sermon primarily by a hot-blooded pastor. The preacher pounded on the pulpit and looked over the casket and said to the people, It's too late for Joe. 
He might have wanted to get his life together. He might have wanted to spend more time with his family. Might have wanted to be more faithful. But it's too late for Job. But there's still time for you. You can decide if you repent. Today is the day. And then he told an old story of a Greyhound bus that ran into a funeral procession on the way to the cemetery and that the same thing could happen to anybody today. It's too late, but not for you. Will said after the funeral, I was absolutely incensed. I was angry at the preacher. And on the way home, I said to my wife, Pat, have you ever seen anything more manipulative in your life? Have you ever heard anything more insensitive, more disgusting and offensive? And she, who was a little calmer than Will, said, no, I've never heard anything like that. Uh, it, It was manipulative. It was disgusting. It was insensitive. And worst of all, it was true. It's a poor sermon that never gives offense. It's a poor sermon that neither makes the hearer displeased with himself or with the preacher. Martin Luther was right when he said, the recognition of sin is the beginning of salvation. Turns out that repentance itself is a gift of grace. So when people ask me as they did this morning, you ready for Christmas? I said, how do you mean it? If you're talking about gifts, if you're talking about parties and sermons, I am not ready for Christmas. But I think I am trying to make sure that as I make my list, that I include the gift of repentance. U-turns are welcome. In fact, they're required. In Jesus' name.